Hey, welcome back to another episode of State of the Art, the podcast that sits at the intersection of art and technology. I'm your host, Gabe BC. You can always follow us at State of the Art on Twitter or Instagram, or you can send me an email at gabe at thestateoftheart.org. Uh, speaking of emails, I've got one to answer here uh, from Jason L., who is interested in getting a gallery as a new media artist. Uh, I just started off making work. I'm interested in getting a gallery. How do I approach a gallery uh, to show my work? Uh, first of all, I would say, question for you, why do you want to show work with a gallery? Um, is it to make money? Is it for the fame? Uh, is it for some other reason? Uh, so think about that first. Why, why a gallery is important. There's lots of other ways to show your work these days and to sell your work. Um, you know, you could show work just through Instagram. I know a lot of artists that actually sell their work through that channel. Or you could open up a pop-up gallery yourself, you know, rent a small space. Uh, you know, maybe you can even get a space for free somewhere and just throw a show and try and get some press for your work. Because that's why a gallery would approach you in the end is if you have sort of a reputation that they're interested in because they're trying to sell your work, you know. So um, unless they think that your work is sellable, they're not going to really approach you. And it's general practice not to necessarily approach a gallery yourself. Um, they get a lot of people approaching them. So if you are going to go that route, I would just make sure you have a portfolio and a clear message about why they should sort of represent you as a media artist. And make sure your work is ready to show, too. You know, you don't want to show something that's not really um, museum quality or <laughs> something that can't run on its own. That's an issue. And, and it's a really fast way to get dropped by a gallery with this kind of work. So if you have more questions, feel free to send me emails at gabe at thestateoftheart.org. We'll read them here on the podcast. One other reminder, last week we had Sarah Rothberg, who has a show opening this uh, today. Actually, if you're listening to this, uh, it'll be in New York at Bitforms Gallery. If you happen to be in New York, it's a show with Sarah Rothberg and Marina Zirkow uh, called Wet Logic. And if you haven't heard last week's episode, definitely go back and check it out. Today, we're going to kind of continue along with uh, virtual reality. Uh, we have a special guest here, Winslow Porter, who is a Brooklyn-based director, producer, and creative technologist. Uh, he specializes in virtual reality and large-scale immersive installations. You may have heard of his piece, uh, Tree VR, which he made as part of his team, uh, New Reality Company, that he uh, founded in 2016 with Melitza Zek. Uh, so we're going to have him and hopefully talk about what makes an interesting narrative VR experience today. So without much further ado, Winslow Porter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me a little bit about your background, um, where you grew up, how did you get started making work? Were you always interested in virtual realities or uh, storytelling? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, the technology wasn't really available when I was growing up, and I moved a lot growing up, but I'll give you the sort of basic backstory. Where I was born in Brunswick, Maine, and then my parents moved to New Hampshire, and then we moved a couple places there, and then back to Maine uh, in the Kennebunk area. Uh, but while there, uh, occasionally we would go to Boston, where there'd be interesting tech trade shows and, you know, sort of these exhibits that almost seemed like, you know, the idea of the future and like, you know, during these uh, world expos, mm -hmm. you know, like the future is so bright and, and you know, amazing that we can take you to these virtual worlds. Um, they had two different virtual reality exhibits at one that was in Boston, where, you know, you, you hear about it on the radio. Also, my family has a radio background. So we listened to a lot of radio growing up. And I think maybe that's even how we found out about this event. Hmm. But we'd show up, my whole family was in this like massive, you know, conference room or like convention center, I should say. And they had these virtual reality booths that people were lined up almost, you know, like uh, 
sort of wall to wall, you know, around the block kind of thing for a two minute experience where you'd put basically two CRT <laughs> screens, you know, these old cathode ray tubes that were small, but had lenses so they could kind of telescope out. Um, and they had to have a device that would basically bear the weight that could hold it. So it wouldn't crush these people. When was this? Um, like what year was this? This is probably, um, 1992, uh, maybe 1991. So that real like old school VR blocky graphics. Oh, incredible. Yeah. It was like dire straits, the money for nothing video, <laughs> um, where, you know, you move your head and then it tracks like like right. a few seconds later. But that was amazing back then. I remember seeing an exhibit like that and just being kind of blown away that I could enter this other space. Oh, yeah. It was amazing because it was also when Lawnmower Man had come out. And the, the future was here as far as everyone was concerned. You know, it was here and in all of its beautiful low poly graphics. You know, uh, and so, yeah, I put it on and, you know, the audio was like janky. It was like a really sweaty kind of like, you know, sort of musty headset. Right. But it worked. I was able to you know, translate my head position stereoscopically. That sounds way too like clinical. It was, it was F-bomb awesome for a <laughs> you can, 10 or 12 year old kid. You can drop the F-bombs here on this podcast. We're, okay. uh, we're very liberal. Well, uh, so what, what, do you remember what that experience was? Like what we were actually looking at in there? You were in a room that had like a grid on the floor because that was an easy way to show that there was a floor without having to texture it. Um, and it was, more just like a, you know, it was just a demo to show like there was, you know, a character in front of you. It was pretty similar to the stuff that I'm just reading uh, one of Jaron Lanier's books right now and talking about sort of the work that he was doing um, in the in the late 80s uh, as well. And it's sort of similar, you know, um, I think there might have been a glove that you wore, you know, this really awesome looking thing kind of re resembled the power glove. Mm -hmm. And that's why Nintendo also did that. Basically a PR, you know, stunt to be able to cash into this sort of idea, this ideal idea of the future. Um, and then I also went to one in Epcot Center maybe a year later. Huge line again, super sweaty headset, uh, only the best. Uh, and that was, in uh, again, in a room, but there was textured graphics this time, a little bit more, you know, sort of attention to detail. And, uh, and the audio worked. But again, it was only like a minute, and it was more just like, see, this is possible. You know, that's everyone sort of walked away from that like not in tears, but more just like happy that that technology could translate, you know, your eyes and your ears into a virtual environment. And then, you know, I got bit by the VR bug, but, you know, it had a long gestation period uh, for yeah, it went it, away uh, for yeah. a while. Right? You know, it was always deep inside me. And then finally it, it came out uh, more recently when the technology became sort of more commercially viable in like 2013. And what was the first project that you worked on back then? Well, the first VR project, uh, which didn't even start out as VR because the DK1 hadn't really even come out yet, was... That's the um, developer kit for Oculus, right? Yep. Yeah. And so that was uh, with Clouds, uh, which is Clouds is a, eventually, you know, it's an interactive documentary about creative code, using creative code to explore different artists' uh, sort of philosophies, uh, the the look and feel of how they handle, you know, these graphics for, you know, C++, which was a language, you know, normally originally controlled, you know, used to control machines, um, now could be used for, for graphics programming and, you know, taking something that sort of had a very utilitarian purpose now as a new canvas for self-expression. And I'm not really, you know, a coder, but I work with a lot of, uh, them. And that was a really amazing project that James George and Jonathan Menard and actually Julia Kaganski was the one who introduced us. Um, you know, that really changed sort of my whole perspective on 
uh, on the field of, of media art and you know how immersive and how emotional a lot of it could be how personal uh, so then that the the bug came back in full effect and on clouds you were the producer yes the producer and then also golan levin uh, was the executive producer and he was one of the first people that was uh captured using this new technology uh from a depth camera which was the connect one which was you know it was a depth camera but for most people it was a interface for a dancing game on a on an xbox right yeah that's the camera that came with the xbox and people would play that just dance game with it right exactly like- and man that was great for you know a, a holiday you know a christmas inviting friends over <laughs> family you know people got really you know people were dancing until like 3 a.m the neighbors would come over so the technology was really powerful but no one had really saw how to take it to think outside the Xbox, if you will. Right. And so what was it like to work with a camera like that where it wasn't made for the purpose that you're using it for, right? You're kind of hacking it apart to make this documentary in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I would, you know. Or to, or to be the producer of something like that. Was that- <laughs> well, luckily I was, yeah, I wasn't having to to sit down and, and troubleshoot, you know, uh, lots of lines of C++ like, uh, you know, like James George, Jonathan Menard, uh, Alexander Porter is also one of the people who helped uh, sort of, you know, bring this technology to fruition through a, a hackathon that was uh, at Carnegie Mellon uh, with the School of Creative Inquiry at Carnegie Mellon with Golan Levin. Um, and what's interesting, though, is I saw this, uh, actually, the same place that I met James George was the same place that I saw the first example of DepthKit because I was uh, staying at Adam Harvey's place um, and he sent me a video and uh it was Golan Levin, you know, from this one perspective, you know, but he was volumetrically captured. Basically, it's a it's a camera on top of the Connect. So from one perspective, you're able to get the full volume of what you see, but because it can't get the data from around the sides, it's sort of this hollow image. And it's, you know, this very sort of futuristic cyberpunk aesthetic that now a lot of people are using and you know, in AR and VR projects. And, so it's you know, like a mesh uh, of a person with some texture on top of that mesh, like a point cloud kind of thing, right? Like Exactly. I mean, but it kind of like, you know, it, 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 there's a frog leap or, you know, you jump over the uncanny valley because it's actual video. Right. And it's actual like, you know, real time or not real time, but it's textures that are, you know, just like you'd capture normal video. So not like the lawnmower man problem that you're no. talking about. No. And that was, you know, that's very scary. And we're still, you know, we're still... We still haven't yet, you know, traversed or, you know, uh, climbed uh, to the other side of the uncanny valley. I think it'll be a while until we do because humans have, you know, sort of this innate programming built in to know if something is, if someone is sick, if someone is, you know, like uh, something doesn't feel right with the conversation. So many micro expressions. So it'll be a while until we can pick those up. But what's nice about the the video, uh, you know, texture on top of this volumetric capture is that it's, it's in a sense, in real, what does the word real mean? But it's as we're used to to consuming media. Right. Um, yeah. And clouds has a very human feeling, even though it does feel a little bit machine made as well, right? Like you're still staring into someone's eyes when they're talking in this documentary. Exactly. And, you know, if you just in Google clouds documentary VR, then you'll see a bunch of uh, these point cloud pictures that are pu- pulled up. Funny side note. Uh, so we released it in 2014. And then 2015, Clouds over Sidra came out. Hmm. And we talked to the director, Gabo Aurora, about this. But Clouds over Sidra is a uh, sort of well known 360 
documentary piece. Exactly, about being with a, a refugee, a Syrian refugee in, in, a, in a camp in Jordan. And it's an extremely moving piece, very influential. But it messed with our SEO like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> <laughs> Some people were finding the wrong thing and uh, like watching their documentary thinking it's yours. Oh, yeah. I guess definitely. what are the chances that two, do- two VR documentary pieces are going to come out with a similar name, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. So that was a, a, a funny a funny thing. Now, I think it's, you know, Google has refined the search and, you know, also, you know, they're, they're, what's nice about VR right now, too, is that it's so new, you know, that there's plenty of room for, for infinite amount of cloud pieces. Um, what did you, what was like the lesson that you took away from working on clouds as a producer that then maybe you would take into your later projects? I would say that, you know, it was so much of it was learning as we went and we were all kind of producers at the same time because we were all having to troubleshoot and, you know, the budget wasn't very big. You know, we were very fortunate to be able to work with some amazing partners like Microsoft, uh, because we were using a lot of their technology, um, you know, sort of innovating on this, this capture camera that they had, um, but you know, it was a lot of uh, a lot of debugging, and because uh, we made the decision as a team to to make it an open frameworks, um, you know, which is like a, an open source, uh, basically a library or a, a framework, I should say, for C You know, there was no customer support. Uh, if, if we went with <laughs> Unity, you know, Unity was just starting to be developing, and you're really familiar, you know, with, with Unity and the, the pipeline. But you know, there's there's people you can email, and there's there's forums and there's threads. Right. And, there's a really rich community of people who are ready to, you know, help all these really esoteric you know, problems with very specific solutions. But, you know, at night, it wasn't like we could, you know, four in the morning when we hit like a, you know, a roadblock or something wasn't working or something, you know, where there was issues with the hardware. It wasn't like there was really anybody we could call. And that, you know, that was that I think sort of galvanized everyone to to want to be really self-sufficient. As you can see, a lot of the people who worked on the project have done really amazing things in the creative code space. You know, like Scatter's doing amazing work. Uh, you know, not just as a as a as a content studio, or I mean, I would say even more so now as a as a platform for creating depth kit, but also making a lot of you know amazing Emmy award winning content. You know, um, with Yasmin as well and and Ellie Zanineri, who is like uh, you know sort of a jack of many trades, uh, but really was able to you know do amazing things when it came to to the game engine and to the point cloud integration. You know, it was like we were kind of in the trenches trying to figure this stuff out. Uh, so I think that also it helped strengthen sort of our bonds as a community because it you know, wasn't just a small group of us. By the end, you know, there was dozens of people who worked on this project. Yeah, and I feel like the beginnings of VR or I guess the resurgence of VR sort of uh, mirrors the beginning of film, right? Where these all these people are sort of experimenting with the new technology. It's a lot of inventors and magicians and scientists working on it. Yeah. Uh, more than people that are an industry, right? And then now it's becoming a little bit more uh, well known. I, but, but, you know, originally I feel like people were just kind of flying by the seats of their pants, right? <laughs> oh, definitely. They're virtual pants. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, and, you know, in, in flying too, you got to make sure. Specifically flying in VR, you, that's an easy way to make people sick. <laughs> right. And people were getting much more sick more often in the beginning of, or I guess in 2014, right? Because there wasn't the same kind of frame rate for these headsets. and Exactly. And, and it's funny you bring that up because Ramsey Nasser, who was actually the first person to show me VR at like a WeWork or something in Soho, he made it a, you know, a game in Unity that just sort of, you know, again, like the translation was there. Like when I moved my head, like, you know, I could, I could be able to, it, it felt very natural. It was a game where you're kind of like a bird, but then he was also talking about, you know, he understood all the inherent issues of frame rate and he said he wanted to make a roller coaster ride where it 
intentionally made people sick. <laughs> I don't think he actually ended up going going forward with that. But the, the goal is how how long can you stay on this roller coaster? Right. It's like and, a good test of your stomach and your eyes at the same time. And it's also, yeah, totally. And it's also interesting because at any point we could close our eyes. And a lot of times people forget that. Uh, that, you know, that this is, you know, as soon as they do, then they realize that they're back in the room, you know, where they started the experience. But I think that is a huge sort of testament to the power, the immersive nature of VR and how much we want to be taken somewhere, how much we trust our senses, our eyes and our ears. And as we're seeing with other types of, you know, VR as it, as it advances, you know, all these other sort of haptic integrations or extrasensory, um, you know, we're able to really immerse people in ways, you know, that maybe we always knew it was possible, but never could really start doing until more recently. So after working on clouds as a producer, um, you decided to sort of find your own company and make a, a creative project yourself. So what was the transition like to do that? And what was this project that came out of it? Um, so yeah, we, I was working at the time at first at Barbarian Group as an interactive producer, but then I also, um, you know, I'd always been wanting to, to make my own projects and I'd see myself as a producer, but also as a, a creative technologist and a creative director. So then I transitioned to a company called MKG and, you know, VR was so hot and like, you know, in quotes. Yeah, well, everybody hashtag. had like a VR yeah. installation in their windows on Broadway at some point. You know? Exactly. And it wasn't even what the installation or how, what the story is. It's, is it the first of its kind? So everyone wanted to be the first of this, you know, the first time you could be a chicken crossing the street in VR. It's a lot of being birds in VR. I don't know why people are obsessed with being birds. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Secret wishes of everyone is to be a bird. It's, it, you know, it's not a bad thing. And there's some really good VR bird experiences out there. Um, but uh, so, you know, I was working for MKG and there was the US Open coming up and MKG was doing the installations for uh, JP Morgan Chase, you know, and every year they have a footprint where they want to do something, you know, sort of tapping into the the buzz, you know, riding the momentum of technology. Um, and so we created a, an experience in Unity for the US Open where you are a, a, a chair umpire, uh, like a line judge, you know, but the person sitting in that tall chair. So we built a tall chair. We even had um, my friend Stuart, who's an engineer for, he's done robotics for NASA. And we asked him to make a, a like a modified subwoofer that would puff a thing of air to simulate a ball coming at you. Yeah, it's and interesting. It, a lot of your projects, you work with physical interaction as well as the virtual, right? Like you have these puffs of air fans. We'll get into that later more with yeah. other projects. But why, why is that important to you to incorporate with VR? You're already so immersed in this world. I think that, yeah, again, we trust our senses. And anytime there's sort of that additional care for the participant or, you know, for things that they're used to, or there's a lot of... Uh, you know, it's, it's always nice to sprinkle a little bit of, of, I don't want to say the word magic, but I just said it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not an Imagineer over here, but, uh, you know, I'm going to put on my Mickey hat here um, and say that it's, you know, really nice to be able to, to mix in elements of the unexpected. Um, and again, yeah, if, we, if we're used to, you know, with our sense of smell, our sense of touch, you know, that's how we've been navigating as humans. You know, that's how we've been evolving to perceive our realities that, you know, they're there for that specific reason, not just to smell things that are, you know, flowery or taste things that are delicious. They're also meant to to make sure that we know not to do certain things or things, you know, are are, are off limits or, you know, beware. So we're, we're you know, we're evolutionarily we're, we're these things are deeply ingrained. So if we can do it in a way that feels naturally uh, integrated, then, yeah, it can have a really amazing uh, it can it can add a lot to the story or to the experience so you made this tennis 
simulation piece where you're the the judge. Yes. And and it, it worked too. When we showed it, it was kind of an open area to slightly enclosed, but we were worried because there's little gusts of air. And we refer to it as like the most expensive puff of air like, <laughs> ever in the history yeah. of the world. And it hit the the, the client experienced it. Uh, and and you know, it worked flawlessly. And then it was just smooth sailing. But we were one of the first companies to be showing with the, the DK2 because it had positional tracking at the time. What does that mean? Uh, that's the, the developer's kit too with Oculus. Um, and so that was really nice because with clouds, we were using the HD DK, which was between the DK1 and the DK2, slightly better resolution, still no position tracking. And positional you know, tracking, what does that give you like as a storyteller? So yeah, I mean, common you know things in VR is like talking about three off, which is three degrees of freedom, which basically means you're just able to pivot on an axis, but with six off, six degrees of freedom, you're able to move uh, later- laterally, you're able to get parallax. And that's something that we're really used to as people not being locked into one place. So it feels natural, like feels like you have, you know, you have agency of movement. And that's really important. Um, so yeah, w- with this, you know, positional tracking was just becoming a thing, there's still no controllers. Um, and so we really wanted to take advantage of the current state of, of VR for our next project. Uh, after working on a few other projects with some other, uh, you know, uh, some other like clients and, and VFX companies, um, realized that, you know, Milica, who I'd been working with uh, at Goldcrest, uh, we were both sort of the lowest rung on the ladder as editors. It's funny, a lot of editors actually get involved in VR or mm-hmm. they have a background where they had to sort of cut their teeth in New York because New York is pretty cutthroat when it comes to media stuff. And I feel like a lot of people got experience, you know, either using, uh, you know, Premiere, Final Cut Pro, Avid, or, you know, After Effects type of work or touching up photos. But, you know, there's a lot of IT peers, you know, the the school that both of us went to. <laughs> You're familiar with it, but maybe the, the listeners aren't. Um, so, you know, we wanted to be able to take our skills of telling stories, of being able to build teams and and, you know, like we had done really run and gun with some music videos in the late 2000s and tell our own stories or bring these stories that maybe could only be recently told through, you know, the advent of commercial VR. And so then um, Milita presented a script to me during the middle of a work day and we went to Le Pen Quotidien, <laughs> uh, which is kind of where we had, we had a lot or of funny memes. All dreams come true. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's not a sponsor. No, it's not yet. <laughs> Um, and you know, so she just gave you the script that she'd been working on. You hadn't talked about it before. She was working with, uh, with Lizzie Donahue, who is her friend that they, um, they, uh, had a long car ride, um, where everyone kind of told their own, you know, an hour version of their life story. Lizzie, um, is a comedian and also a script writer, uh, really amazing to work with, you know, like amazing to collaborate with on this project and was, you know, really interested in how we could be using, you know, Milita thought you know, like, you know, how do we use the story, which is, uh, you know, sort of taking the idea of, of being with a family in a conflict zone, because Milica grew up in Serbia, um, in the, you know, in, in Belgrade, uh, you know, Belgrade was already a war-torn country from everything that was happening in the, you know, in the nineties, but also in the late nineties with the, the NATO bombings, uh, from, you know, that were sort of initiated by the U S. Um, and, you know, not to get overly political or anything right now, but, uh, you know, there's a certain feeling that a lot of people in the U.S. can't relate to, um, that VR, if done, you know, certain steps are taken. If the participant is considered and the story is, is you know, is sort of uh, told in the right way, 
people can feel certain emotions. And we wanted for a, a, a US family or a, a Western audience to feel what it was like to be in a basement with a family that was all of a sudden caught in the middle of a conflict that wasn't their own. That was, you know, their nation. Um, and we also wanted to keep it vague so that people would project their own fear or their own, you know, idea of what that conflict would be. So you're with a family that is uh, two, two parents and their daughter. Um, and you know, she's, uh, like six, eight years old. And they tell her that the approaching bombs are, is a giant that wants to play with her. Um, and so we, you know, sort of, it was going back to, um, a few years before where we were using depth kit because we wanted to be able to have volumetric video. We didn't want to have the uncanny Valley. We had talked about all different pipelines, you know, how are we going to, sh- you know, are we going to shoot real people? Are we going to use motion capture? Um, are we going to be animated? And we decided that real people would be the best. Um, and so, yeah, we, we were able to cast, um, you know, some really amazing actors, be able to bring the story to life. And they had also never been in a war zone too. So it was really important for us to be able to have like intense sound cues. So they were actually feeling these, you know, the, the, the bombs as they were approaching to be able to have a convincing performance. And, you know, there's a whole nother, uh, podcast or book or, you know, volumes of books, I should say that can be written about, you know, directing people in VR, you know, whether, what are the differences between stage and TV and traditional media with, you know, when you put a headset on, you know, it's like, it's always kind of a close up because you're always there in the room. And for the most part, at least in 2016, um, there's no, you know, big cuts. Yeah. Which is interesting. Cause you said that a lot of editors went into VR, but there's not that much editing in VR usually. Exactly. So you kind of have to like give up or not give up. You have to kind of like <laughs> Relinquish control. I yeah, maybe that's give kind up, of liberating for editors. It really is. Um, so this piece became Giant. That's the piece we're yes, talking about. Exactly. It was a long-winded way. Of and Giant, uh, super successful piece. You showed it all over the world. What were the reactions to this piece that's somewhat political? I think what was nice is that, yeah, we didn't, just like with our follow-up uh, with Tree, we didn't you know, hit you over the head. There's no narration. Even though there's dialogue, uh, which is in English, um, we're not telling you this is the conflict you know, this is what's happening and this is how you should feel. We kept it as open-ended as possible. But, you know, also with the limitations of VR being that this is still before you had controllers. So you couldn't really have a presence, a body. Um, you couldn't have hands. And so you were kind of this, you were a passive observer in this environment. Uh, and even so, you still had the feeling like you were there with this family, you know, in this six and a half minute uh, experience. Where a lot of people, yeah, I would say people that had families, you know, younger kids or people who had lived in this experience themselves. And we also made sure that we were, uh, made sure that we gave people um, a trigger warning to let them know that they were going to be placed in a basement with a family in a con- an active conflict zone. You know, if any time, you know, feel free to take the headset off or if this is something that, that doesn't appeal to you or something you want to experience, then, you know, you, no pressure. You don't have to, to go through with it. Did people um, op- often opt to not experience the peace? I would say there was a, somebody from Sri Lanka who didn't, somebody from Iran, somebody from Lebanon, somebody mm. from Israel. Um, and that was maybe, I was, we've shown it in many places where I was not present, but yeah, maybe only five people um, said they didn't want to do it. And then somebody, somebody even was like, their friend told them, oh, actually, you know, it's it's not what I expected. You know, you should try it. And then, you know, one of them did. Is that different, you think, than making a traditional film where you feel like because you're embodying this character in a space, you have to be warned 
You know, like there's a different level of psychological connection that happens with a, a VR piece. I definitely think so. Um, because again, there's a part of your brain, you know, and there's lots of studies that show because VR feels like it's real in many times, it is actually using a different part of your brain as opposed to sort of this third person, you know, 2D experience where we can kind of take it as we want because it's, you know, literally strapped to our face. It's, it's transporting our eyes and our ears. And so again, our brain thinks that it's real. And that's a really important thing to consider too, is how you onboard the participant so that you're not overwhelming them with what's happening. You let them feel really comfortable. We oftentimes, you know, whenever we can do it in a dark room that it also is, you know, like components of a set so that the experience begins before they even put the headset on. Just like, you know, like uh, Disney is, you know, <laughs> again, big, big Disney plugs here. No, but, you know, they've <laughs> done a great job of, of, you know, even before people begin the experience, starting the narrative so that people are already in that mindset so that, you know, that's just the icing on the cake, putting on the headset. Um, but there are certain things you need to consider, you know, and, and as VR becomes more real, there's also issues of traumatizing people or re-traumatizing people, which we definitely want to be very, you know, careful of. We want it to make sure that it's a positive experience, even if it is emotional for some people. You know, a lot of people, when we first showed at Sundance and big ups to uh, Todd Bryant and Jack Karen uh, for, for, <laughs> You know, working on they they pushed the the last build. I think at like three forty five in the morning, and then we went live at eight a.m. Oh, no, that's not stressful at all. No, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> VR is also the reason why I have like you know, like um, salt and peppery, you know, and and maybe you as well. It's true. <laughs> it's VR. It's and, and AR that's ruined my uh, my hair. Yeah, it made me age ten years. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's like I mean, I'm sure you you have all sorts of stressful stories where you know things just don't work or. You know, like, because you're trying something new and, and, you know, the whole point is to do, try something new. So if it, if it doesn't work, then maybe you're doing something right. Right. You know, if everything is, you know, just like, you know, idea in and, you know, project out, then, you know, it's probably something like that has been done before. So there's something nice about, about breaking things, you know, when you make things to try to fix, fix the problems. And then once you do, you know, there's a certain amount of confidence as a team, you know, for trying even more difficult tasks from a user or a participant journey perspective. Yeah, like in Giant, you're using, we mentioned before that you use these uh, elements in the real world also to enhance the story. And in Giant, there's a lot of sonic elements, right? Sound and bass shakers underneath you. and Exactly. And so the, the point of the, we use, there's a funny story we tell when we were at Sundance in 2016, that there was a Martian VR experience, which is a really high quality experience, you know, especially for back then when, you know, there wasn't much, uh, it was a lot of 360 video, but there wasn't much game engine. And this is a major piece of Hollywood IP. A lot of studios worked on it, had a real nice polish to it. This is the Matt Damon Martian movie. Exactly. Right. And then, but they also had this 25,000, you know, I uh, believe around there, D-Box chair, which can be highly immersive. What is that? What's a D-Box chair? It's a funny name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> where it basically, it rattles you, shakes you, pivots you, you know, all different ways. Kind of like a flight simulator chair. Okay. I think maybe it was turned up a little too high sometimes because I almost got like bucked out of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, always what you want in your uh, experiences. But if it's not perfectly aligned too, it can sometimes cause nausea and like, you know, just confusion, mm-hmm. general confusion from the user participant. Um, and uh, so I think that, you know, ours was a really simple solution. You know, that's a $25,000 chair. And meanwhile, we had a, like a $35 generic butt kicker, which is a, a gaming, 
basically a modified subwoofer that people would put in the bottom of their couch, at the bottom of their chair, which, you know, if they get fragged in a first person shooter, they really feel it. Right. And so it's one more way to immerse gamers. And in many ways, you know, the term gamers kind of loosely thrown around, but I would say gaming culture, you know, uh, multiplayer, you know, whether it's PlayStation, Xbox or PC have really been elevating uh, the the technology. They're the reasons why there's a market for GPUs. People well, thought VR was how it would take uh, off. And that's why VR, you know, uses these game engines to to create the, the storytelling experiences, right? I mean, it's like yeah, we're kind of making somewhere between a game and an, a, and an old film. Exactly. And well, Unreal Engine was from Unreal Tournament, which is a, you know, a shooter game. Right. And so like a lot of this technology, you know, is based from these these video game experiences, which are, you know, insanely popular. And, you know, uh, I believe in many ways making, you know, it's a bigger industry than film. Um, but so, a lot of these game engines aren't designed to create moving stories, uh, documentary stories, right? So you sort of have to hack them to do that. Exactly. And it's becoming easier now because there's all sorts of like, uh, you know, in both Unity and Unreal, and we primarily use Unreal. Um, uh, there's, you know, there's sort of like timelines for, for editors that you can use, which, you know, weren't always there. So you got to gotta get creative with how you do it as far as syncing things. And I just remember, you know, seeing Todd oftentimes late at night at, you know, NYU, just trying to figure out how to make it work, how to trick the software into doing what you wanted it to, even though it wasn't what it was meant to do. Yeah. You know, like for as far as timing goes and triggering certain things. And yeah, I mean, what was interesting also is that we were able to, to do things that would work in video games, like, you know, having this haptic chair shake and you know, also have like really like the spatial audio was amazing. We worked with a sound designer who actually, uh, came from Serbia, so he'd experienced these things. Alexander Prodic, and then um, as far as like the final mix and spatial audio elements, Scott Gershon, who had already worked on like you know movies like Pacific Rim, mm. Born on the Fourth of July, um, and then also video games like Mech Warrior and Doom. So he had come from both worlds, and he knew how to put them together. And so it was really inspiring to see him be like, "Oh, no problem! Like we got this." We were able to use strengths of the video game engines, but in sort of a new, through a new lens. Um, you know, there's no high score in Giant. Right, of course. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a linear narrative, uh, but still it was important to, you know, make it so that the lighting was real time and that the characters looked like they were composited. Uh, and Juan Salvo did an amazing job of, he had come from a background of color timing. And so, you know, able to use the, the strengths of his filmmaking abilities and, and put them in. You know, because no one had told any of us how to do this. And so we tried a lot of prototyping and, you know, you keep having to iterate, like take the bits that work, put them back in, try it again. You know, it's, it's almost like cooking or something. You have to keep putting it in the oven, take it out, give it a little taste. And you're like, OK, maybe a little more salt or maybe this entire I'm just eating a a, a whole like, you know, block of salt. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of VR experiences are too much salt. Exactly. I found. So you make Giant, uh, it goes around the world, you show it a bunch of different places. And how did you come to the next project then? So, this is like a, a years in development, but they're kind of related in a way. Yeah, and it, it goes back to MKG where we were submitting for a Sundance Story Lab uh, with with Giant. And then Milica, when we were working late at night, this MKG, thank you for allowing us access to to the uh, to the offices late at night and also, you know, there's like unlimited supply of Diet Cokes there too. So that, that was very helpful. Um, you know, she had the idea of, you know, why don't we, if we're going to be working on one project, you know, we already have some other ideas for some stuff in the pipeline. You know, why don't we create this trilogy where 
giant is, you know, obviously from from what I've described, you know, the harm that humans do to each other. But then, you know, what if, what if we start talking about the harm that we do to nature? And then, you know, we, we don't want to leave people with all doom and gloom. So then the third part, breathe, um, which we're in, in, in prototyping phase of, um, is sort of the, this, this hope for, for humanity, not just keep it all, you know, sort of like, like doom and gloom. Um, and so then we, um, you know, we went right into tree, uh, which was pretty crazy, uh, considering that we didn't really have any budget. And, you know, and oftentimes just like the storyline or how you're telling a story, you have to get just as creative with how you fundraise, how you build teams, how you think about, you know, the distribution model um, and, you know, how many festivals you want to do. You know, there's, there's a lot of complexities, especially back then, because there really wasn't any market. Nobody, nobody owned VR headset, only people who worked in VR. And so there wasn't a an easy place to be able to, to sell. Uh, you know, if you work in film, you've got theaters and then you've got, you know, like before, you know, there was a lot of like DVD and rentals and obviously Netflix and HBO and Disney plus, and there's so many distribution mechanisms to be able to tap into. So there's a lot of ways to make money and keep it sustainable. But in VR, that was not at all possible, uh, in, in 2016, when we first started ideating the concept. And so, what was the sort of tagline for tree when you started working on it? It was, you know, like the basic idea is, you know, how do we, how do we become more, how do we understand deforestation and, you know, which ultimately leads to climate change uh, more intimately? How do we make that a personal experience? And so I, the technology was just available to be able to have controllers. And so we do that by placing you inside the body of a tree, by becoming a tree. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it sounds kind of, you know, silly or like, uh, you know, at first, but then when you do it, it it's very innate. Uh, it's very, it feels very natural. And even people who are botanists are like, you know, that was incredible. They're like you didn't get all the, the, <laughs> the biology, right? I'm did, like, you, did you research? I mean, did you do research with botanists? To oh, make this definitely. Piece? Yeah. And we did as much as we could. And we also, uh, we worked with the rainforest Alliance and also with, you know, the incredibly talented artist, Jacob Kudstensen, who was our art director on the project to be able to help create, you know, sort of like, how do we mold, the experience to make sure that it feels like you're actually in the Peruvian Amazon. Yeah. In the experience, you plant a seed of a Kapok tree, which is a, a tree that's endangered in, you know, all over the Amazon, but specifically in this area called Madre de Dios, which apologies on the pronunciation in advance, uh, is an area where the, there's a lot of deforestation for illegal gold mines. A lot of times farmers, um, and we'll just set, you know, uh, ablaze to huge tracts of land um, to be able to then go through and, and clean out, you know, so the wildlife is gone and, and they were able to then, you know, bring in um, skitters and stuff to be able to, to clear it so they can start mining. You know, it's also issues of agriculture and, uh, and livestock too. So we learned all this from, from uh, Rainforest Alliance three and a half years ago. This is a lot of times, I mean, this is a significant amount of time, at least in in climate change news, uh, before people were, you know, very, before it was top of mind about the fires that are happening in the Amazon, uh, you know, anything about Australian fires or just sort of how climate change is, is, you know, impacting everyone, not just people who are in these problem areas that are in, you know, in Indonesia or in Malaysia or in, in the Amazon. And so, yeah, we wanted to, to take 
you know, how we saw the impact of Giant, especially from, you know, we wanted that project to be shown in places like the UN and, you know, in, in different places to be able to I- impact people's perception and, and ultimately have uh, our end goal was, you know, entertainment, obviously, because it's a new form of media, but, but that could influence people's perception and ultimately make policy changes. Um, yeah, and tree is a super powerful piece. I mean, I've, I watched. We were in Korea together, watching people experience tree, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people have these very emotional reactions to it. I mean, without giving away too much, there's kind of a, a powerful ending to the piece that uses real world uh, elements as well. Mm-hmm. Um, were there were there times where you're working on it where it felt silly? Like it doesn't feel silly when you're doing it, but I could see how it would, oh. there would be a problem there because you're a tree, right? And you're waving your arms, which are branches, at some point, and if that's not done well, it could be really cartoonish. Well, yeah, the, the first version felt almost like a horror movie because the model of tree that we got was a particularly like thorny kapok tree. So you're like, help, I'm stuck in this tree. Yeah, more it almost was like like <laughs> Hellraiser or like, you know, yeah. like, or like, a you know, it was it was like very claustrophobic. And then the, the vines and branches were all up in your face. So you didn't have sort of this like this is all put together, put together in like a week. Yeah, like the first version we were showing and. The developers who were working on the project, a company called Dikochan that was helping us in Denmark, that Jacob brought in, um, you know, they were really amazing at, at, at putting this together. The, the basic thing that we wanted to, to translate or to communicate was being able to have to grow, which is a really difficult problem in VR to go through, I think, by the end. No, you start in the, in the roots, right? You start in the soil and yeah. then you get... You know, I don't know how tall you get by the end of it, but yeah, I have um, vertigo and it, it impacted me a little bit. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, you know, we ended up, uh, having to to figure out, you know, working through 75 different blend shapes, basically going morph targets, going from one to another, to another, to another, like consistently. So you wouldn't notice it, but that, you know, from a technological perspective, we had never, there was no guide to how to be a tree for dummies, you know? And so there was a lot of, uh, researching different pipelines working with, we ended up working with four different VFX companies, um, in a, in a sort of an internal team as well. Um, and it was, you know, it was not an Eric who was, who was our developer, you know, like just, we it was sort of like, yeah, let me, let me try that. You know, he, he was very, uh, sort of fearless when it came to, to, to making things possible. But yeah, I mean, it felt silly because we were growing these little branches underground and we were just like, you know, it was always like 4am where we just start laughing uncontrollably because we could start kicking off the top of the soil almost like a like a hat that you'd flick off (laughs) and it was so funny but it also kind of worked that was also what made it funnier is like like we were so amazed that our plan was possible and with putting enough work into it like we even submitted our project the day that trump was elected not not inaugurated Mm -hmm. and that was really strange because it was also this sense of you know like oh like this huge weight had been lifted um, and then also <laughs> another weight, <laughs> right. we were, we were gaining a lot more in this other part of well, our brain. And, th- and that part, you know, that makes tree a really powerful piece to come out during this time though, too. Exactly. And, you know, especially not just in, you know, with the U S uh, you know, with everything that's happening in different countries. And again, you know, like it can get political very quickly. Uh, and that's why we, with, with tree, we wanted to make it so that you're a tree, you grow, you, 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 you witness all these amazing scents. Um, you know, heat and wind, or I should just say wind before I spoil it. Um, <laughs> well, you grow to be the tallest tree and it's this really sort of cathartic experience. 
Did you work um, with someone doing uh, scents for this piece too? So yeah, we worked with International Flavors and Fragrances. You just approach them and say, hey, I want to do something where it's in this particular part of the world. And are these the smells that you'd have there? So we met with the former critic, scent critic of the New York Times, Chandler. Huh. I don't know if you're familiar with Chandler. No. Burr. Really, I mean, a really knowledgeable guy when it comes to scent. And uh, he was, uh, you know, he was kind of like, listen, I'm really busy, but I'll put you in touch with IFF. And that was great. Because then IFF was immediately like, this project is right up our alley. We want to be doing more immersive work because we're used to doing designer, you know, perfumes, you know, for like things, all sorts of uh, brands that you know and have smelled, you mm. know, like. <laughs> <laughs> all the, the smells you lo- know and love. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and so they they were really interested. In, and then we worked with this guy named Robert, uh, Robert Mueller, not Robert Mueller, uh, <laughs> who. Um, who was based in Cologne, coincidentally enough. Yeah. Um, and he was able to give us the technology, which was, uh, which we were able to suspend the scent inside these like crystals, off-white crystals in glass tubes, which always made it really fun to, to travel into yeah, other countries, especially with a sub pack, which is a vibrating backpack, which is, you know, a backpack with wires coming out of it. So there's so, a lot going on in this experience. <laughs> yeah, but no, but yeah, customs officers were always like, what? You know, what, yeah, there's a lot going on in this experience. Right. You know? um, so, yeah, with, with Ascent Company, uh, we worked with um, Anahita from IFF, uh, was incredible in, in helping us work with a, a perfumer, a master perfumer named Laurent, who was able to create these three different scents of the underground being in the soil, this really wet soil, super authentic smell that you don't even question. You're like, oh, of course, I'm in the soil. Hmm. And it reminds me, particularly, I get a little emotional. When um, when I smell it almost every single time, you know, especially if, if some time has passed between showings, because it reminds me of my grandmother, you know, in Exeter, New Hampshire, putting me to work in her backyard, hmm. like digging up, basically pulling weeds up, planting saplings, getting dirt underneath my fingers. And it immediately I go back into this, you know, almost like flashbacks. And so I have a different association than anybody else would have. But a lot of people have a very sort of, yeah, like... Uh, oftentimes meaningful or you know or i would say immediate uh recall of a memory because it gets imprinted you know when you first smell that wet soil do you have any um smell sense will bring you back (laughs) lots of really bad ones actually no no (laughs) none that you care to (laughs) none that i want to make into a vr piece okay so what were the you know you've taken this piece everywhere now tree has been shown it's still being shown you showed it this week um yeah we were just showing it at, at the new museum uh, on the in the Skyrim for the past two weekends, and that that was really nice. And what are the, what have the reactions been like overall? Has anybody been like, oh, I, this piece does not work for me? That um, they don't feel like they've embodied the tree? Um, you know, not really. Uh, and which is kind of uh, uh, we were I think really surprised because we, you know, the whole piece, especially for Sundance, we only had about two and a half months to make it happen, and that was with you know again an amazing team of of engineers and artists, as well as people who are, you know, working on the haptics with us, a team from MIT, Shin and Yadan, who were, you know, really amazing from a collaboration perspective. And everyone sort of understood how crazy these deadlines were, but that was also the reason why we wanted to do it. Because a piece like this really hadn't been done at Sundance and, and, uh, and it was a huge opportunity to sort of push the boundaries of, of immersive storytelling. Uh, and yeah, I think because of, we've seen people's reactions and We've probably made uh, hundreds of iterations on the project mm-hmm. since it first started. Unlike traditional film where you lock picture, 
you know, and you get to sit back and, and screen it in front of a large group of people. We were, you know, tweaking it oftentimes at night, you know, after, you know, hundred people go through, we'd see their, their reactions and we keep updating it. Um, and that's, you know, we just created a new version for, we were showing at the World Economic Forum in Davos. We're able to integrate haptics into the controllers, uh, more optimization on the graphics, more, more plants, more animals, more flowers, you know, to help really bring it to life and really just do little tiny changes that most people wouldn't notice. But because they didn't notice also, if they did notice, then, you know, maybe those weren't the right changes to make. We wanted to make it so that there's a little something for everyone in the piece. There's no Morgan Freeman vo voice of God telling you how to feel. And so it's very personal because everyone has their own connection with nature and how, you know, technology can, can, you know, in many times enhance that. And sometimes it can also divorce us further from reality. And so Definitely. it's a really interesting field to be working in right now. Um, especially as technology becomes more, or as the virtual becomes more real. Um, so we, you know, I'll be traveling to Miami this Wednesday and then going on another little tour, uh, to Azerbaijan, <laughs> <laughs> Nice, which I had, the to, tree everywhere. I had to look it up on a map. Uh, is there a way people can experience this on their own? Is it really part of the whole ceremony that you create in the, in the physical installation? We really prefer people to, to, uh, to experience it with the the heat, wind, vibration, scent, mm. planting of the seed, takeaway at the end. At the end of the experience, we give you an envelope and the seed of the tree that you became, the Kapok tree. And we say, take the seed as a reminder to keep our forest standing. And then there's more information about the project, as well as uh, you know what you can do to support the Rainforest Alliance. So it's just all those things coming together really help make this, you know, it's a really holistic approach. And it really... It's like, I mean, I don't really know what to compare it to, but it it's really essential for us if, if people get all those components. We were just in Davos showing to a group of 12 uh, blind waiters who work for Dinner in the Dark, and they had never, many of them had never done VR before, but we were able to uh, translate into Spanish what was happening on their screen. And they were, almost all of them had cried. And it was mm. a situation where, we could do three people at a time. They had all, they were all crying. And then the docents were crying. And then we were crying, watching everyone cry. Mm -hmm. So it was one of the most emotional experiences I've ever had. And it was because of the fact that we could still immerse them in a narrative without having to use their, their eyes. You know, that was not necessarily the most important component. And for us, it really sort of showed the power of, you know, of the platform. And if it's done, you know, if, if enough care is taken, you know, and I'm sure this has happened with, with other projects, you know, as well in, in different ways, uh, but it sort of showed that, that it was, this is something that's worth pursuing. And what are the other stories that we can tell or that anyone can tell using these game engines that are essentially free to develop on? And, you know, what are the other places that these stories can be told? So it's, it's a nice place to wrap up there, I think. Uh, you've taken the original 90s VR headset, which was filled with sweat, and now replaced it with tears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's really evolved here over the, over the last 30 years. There's blood involved somewhere. Too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hope not. Um, before we go, we have a tradition of doing rapid fire questions here on State of the Art. So I'm going to ask you some questions that are not related maybe to VR whatsoever. Just the first thing that pops into your head. Uh, so Winslow Porter, what is your favorite karaoke song? Um, it would be... Definitely be Bobby Caldwell, What You Won't Do for Love, which I'll be singing tonight 
If anyone's out there. <laughs> well, this is yeah. going to air after. So technically, well, it's, it's in, in general, the past. though, you, you can find us on most Monday nights at Beats Karaoke in Williamsburg. So you have a VR like meetup karaoke, right? Yeah, Chris, a- Kristen Gutenkunz, who uh, was doing VR for the UN, uh, also an amazing singer, great range, and fantastic human. Um, yeah, we, we do a lot of karaoke, which is the best part of it is that nobody talks about VR. Right. You're not wearing VR headsets while you're doing karaoke, oh, just to be clear. Oh, definitely not. It, it's very analog, as analog as you can get. Uh, but yeah, that's that's the like sort of this amazing uh, coming together of different VR communities, AR communities, but nothing virtual. What's your favorite movie? Like a movie that when it comes on TV, you will watch it no matter what time it is. Um, there, I sort of have two different answers to that. One of them would be like you know old John Carpenter movies, where because it, it reminds me of being like a really like you know having my mind blown as an eight year old. Uh, like Big Trouble in Little China, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, or like you know, really any Kubrick movie, just because they're so well done. You can watch them. I think any really great movie too is something you can watch with the sound off, and so it'll just be something that you can have in the background. It's almost like your TV becomes a work of art. Hmm. You know, it's for like for two or three hours, it's doing its Kubrick thing, and you know you don't want to mess mess it up. So it's almost like a uh, like a kinetic or like it's like a an installation happening. So yeah, I mean, very influential to me as a, as a, you know, as a human, I would say. Besides Kubrick, um, who's someone you look up to? Um, I would, I'm really into, into drummers. I play drums myself. So Jeff Beccaro, um, (laughs) just because he was, he was such a badass. like in, he didn't give a damn. And he ended up like dying, like mowing his lawn or something (laughs) like at the age of like 48 or 52 or something like, you know, died far too young. But as far as if you watch his drum tutorial videos where he talks about doing, you know, like a modified Purdy shuffle, you know, for, for, uh, the song, um, um, what's it? Rosanna, you know, like you just hear like all this amazing, uh, knowledge and he's just the king of cool. Like I strongly suggest you guys just YouTube, uh, his drum tutorial videos. <laughs> All right. Well, Winslow, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, take a you know look out for Tree. It's going to be touring, I assume, forever. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's letting up. Yeah. So maybe you'll be able to see it in a city near you. Uh, and we'll put the information up on our social media as well. So you can uh, kind of track or check it. Um, all right. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Winslow. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for another episode of State of the Art. State of the Art is an at-art production created by Ethan Appleby. Weston Stevens is our audio engineer extraordinaire, and Vanessa Wilson is our producer. We'll be back next week with another new artist, technologist, robot, microchip, AI, slime mold. Uh, We'll see. I'm Gabe BC. You can follow me at Gabe BC. Stay tuned, and we'll talk to you next week.